Hey, this is Dave Ryder from Cullamunda Church of Christ. Really praying this podcast blesses you. If you'd like to hear more of our story, how about you go to our webpage, cullamunda.church. Well, just wanted to add to Dave's welcome and say, well done for coming out. Um, there are so many things you can't do with a mask, right? It's easy for me to say, I'll just do mine off. Look, if you need to run out and get a bit of fresh air, just go and do that. Like, I know what it's like. And singing with a mask, do you feel like you're hyperventilating in a brown bag? <laughs> I arrived up here like puffed. And you know, you just can't go like this with a mask. <laughs> you really got to think about it. And if you've got a beard, it's awkward because you get this little kind of curls up underneath and you get a little bald spot. And if you've got a moustache, it all kind of goes up your nose and it's itchy. They're awkward, I know. But we're going to do it. So thanks for coming and for persevering with that. I'm really excited to be here. Um, we're going to dive into a, a story this morning from the New Testament. It's a story that most of you will have heard, I imagine. Uh, perhaps perhaps you haven't. Well, that's okay because I'm inviting each of us to hear this story as if we're hearing it for the first time. And that's something that I like to do when I come to Scripture because, you know, the Bible is a story that we've heard many of us over and over and over again. And as I've said before when I speak, when I've spoken here, uh, some of you will recall that sometimes we're so busy kind of reading or just kind of hearing a story that we're familiar with that we actually don't hear anything. <laughs> so I'm actually going to invite you as I share this story this morning to not look at your Bible. It's okay. I want you to look at your Bible, but first I want you to hear the story. And then we're going to dive into the text and have a look at perhaps some of the things that we might discover together. But I'm doing this for a specific reason, because uh, I want you to listen as if you're hearing it for the first time, as I said. And I want you to consider as you're listening, and if you're like me, you can't do too many things at once. So if you're reading, you probably can't imagine. So what I want you to do this morning is imagine what it would be like to be in that story. Maybe one of the characters in the story might be one of the main characters, might be a side character, it doesn't matter. But just imagine what it would be like to be there. To see if you can picture yourself in the scene. As I said, it's a very familiar story. It's one perhaps you've heard many times. It comes from Luke chapter 7, but you can also find it in the book of Matthew, but we'll kind of get to that in a moment. After I've shared the story, I'm going to invite you to just spend a couple of moments just talking to the person next to you about something that you discovered. I was going to get people to come and share what they've discovered, but that's kind of a little bit difficult today, so we won't do that. But I am inviting you just to share for a moment with each other, one or two things that you discovered from the story. And in particular, I'm inviting you to consider these questions as you listen to this particular story. The first question is this. What have you heard that you've never heard before? Or what are you hearing for the first time as you listen to this story? We might phrase that another way. What, what stands out to you? Something that you've never noticed before, perhaps. The other question that I'm inviting you to consider and to briefly talk about with each other once I've read the story is, um, I don't know, maybe something along the lines of, uh, as you think about this story, what do you wonder about? What questions does it raise for you? Are we good to go? Close your eyes if you want. I won't be able to tell if you're asleep. That's okay. Uh, lie on the floor if that's helpful. 
Um, it is like a gangster's convention, you're right. That's okay. The story goes like this. The village of Capernaum sits nestled on the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Surrounded by farming land on one side and water on the other, it is an idyllic haven for those who have made their home there. Largely untroubled by the Romans, Capernaum enjoys relative peace and prosperity. Of the 1,200 or so people that live in and around Capernaum, many of them are farm workers and many are fishermen. There is a Jewish synagogue in Capernaum and it has a vibrant market which attracts people from all over the surrounding area. One of the residents of Capernaum is a Roman centurion and although we do not know much about him or even his name, what we do know is that he holds a position of authority in the community. Likely to be in his mid to late 30s, this centurion has an extensive military experience and is well known for his bravery and his fighting skill. But more importantly, he's known as a man with good character. He's disciplined, honest, fair and determined. Only those who displayed these virtues were given opportunities to serve in outpost communities like Capernaum. As a centurion, he has authority, skill, experience and respect. Now to be fair, we don't know why this particular centurion has been posted to Capernaum. It's entirely possible that he has volunteered to be there. And interestingly, centurions usually served, believe it or not, in administrative roles in the places where they were located, acting more like community liaison officers rather than military overseers. In reality, he was a governing official who represented the state of Rome. Whatever the circumstances for his posting, one thing that we do know about this man is that he's an active part of the community. He would have a small, uh, or probably a large house or villa in town or, or nearby, and it's entirely possible that he's a married man with a family. We certainly know from the story that he had servants. Now, one of these servants became very ill, bedridden and close to death. And this caused a great deal of concern for the centurion because he had uh, a particular high regard for this servant. Maybe it was his head servant, we don't know, but whatever the case, he was way too valuable to lose. So when the centurion heard that the rabbi known as Jesus was back in town, he sent leaders from the Jewish community to ask him if he would come and heal his servant. The men went at once and found Jesus and urged him to come to the centurion's house. They said to him, this man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and he has built our synagogue. That's quite a telling statement and yet not entirely unusual. Centurions, and especially senior-ranking centurions posted into places like Capernaum, were very well paid and they often funded, out of their own pocket, local building projects. This ensured a good working relationship with the local community. So, Jesus went with them. The scene is almost ironic. Jesus, being led by the elders of the local synagogue, 
to the home of the local Roman representative. Some of these elders were among those who would have been present at a recent event at which Jesus caused quite a stir. It was a Sabbath day, and whilst at the synagogue, Jesus had healed a man who had a shriveled hand. This caused some of the Pharisees who were there to become really angry, and they began discussing of what they were going to do with this Jesus of Nazareth. I can't help but wonder what was running through the elders' minds right now. And I also can't help but wonder what the disciples were thinking at this point. They had just spent the whole night up in the hills with Jesus as he was praying. And earlier that morning, 12 of them had been appointed by Jesus specifically to serve as apostles. Following that, Jesus had taught a large crowd that had gathered at the base of the hill. Some of them had come to hear him speak. Others had come to find healing. And the whole crowd was pushing and jostling to be close to Jesus. And many of them were trying to reach out and touch him to find healing. It had been an amazing morning. Jesus had taught on many different subjects like loving one's enemies and about judging others. And these words had been hard hitting. He spoke about blessings and woes, about bearing good fruit and being a wise builder. There had been so much to take in. As Jesus and his disciples were heading towards the centurion's house, another group of men approached. They were friends of the centurion who had been sent to intercept Jesus with this message. Rabbi, we are friends of the centurion who sent for you and he has sent us to deliver this message. Lord, don't go to the trouble of coming to my house. I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. That is why I have sent these men with my request. Just say the word and that will be enough to heal my servant. After all, I understand how authority works, being under authority myself and having soldiers under my authority. I command to one, go, and he goes, and I say to another, come, and he comes, and I say to my servant or my slave, do this, and he does it. For a moment, there was an awkward silence. And Jesus stood there, totally amazed. He turned to the crowd that was following him and he spoke to them. He said, listen, everyone, (laughs) this outsider, this centurion has more faith than I have even found among our own Jewish people. And with that, he dismissed the group of men who had come to him and sent them on their way. And when they arrived back at the centurion's house, they found the servant up and well, totally healed. Just take a moment to think through the story that you've just heard and then just for a couple of minutes, just a minute or so, just have a little conversation with someone around you, next to you, um, if you're comfortable doing that. Um, What did you notice for the first time or what stood out to you from this story? And as you think about it, what do you wonder about and what questions uh, does it raise? Just have a little conversation. It's okay to talk in church. I know it's a little difficult, but just uh, have a conversation and have a crack at talking about those two, uh, those two points.
Uh, just another moment to finish up what you're discussing. I love hearing people talk about the Word of God. It excites me. And plus you get to do some of the work today. <laughs> That's good. There's something about stories which are particularly powerful. And as I've been saying, often when we come to the Scriptures or the Bible, uh, even though we know that it's written in, in many places in a narrative format, we often don't read it as a story, we just read it as a, as a text. Uh, as, as a piece of history. Now, it is a piece of history, but sometimes we only read it as history. Or we read it as, a, as a, um, some type of spiritual instructive, which of course it is, but we only read it that way. Do you know what I'm saying? We, we forget to actually step into the fact that it's, a, it, it's, it's all of those things. It's, it's, it's a narrative. It's a, it's, a, it's a story about real people in real-life situations and um, last time I checked, we're all of that as well. We're real people in real life situations. And so somehow we need to relearn, I think, how to connect with the characters in these narratives. Because in many ways they're no different to us. They lived a few thousand or a couple of thousand years ago, yes, and they come from a different culture, yes, I understand all that. But they're human, as we are. And so we're so common in every way. We're so common in every way. And if we can take a story like this that we're so familiar with and kind of place ourselves in it and see ourselves in it, there's so much richness in this narrative as we, as we attempt to hear what God is trying to say to us this morning. As I said, normally I would take the opportunity to have a few people kind of share what they were discussing and I'm not going to do that today, I think that would be too difficult, but... Um, as you think about the story that you've just heard, as you wonder about it, as maybe it raises questions for you and perhaps there are things that you heard that you've never kind of really considered or, or thought of before, it's my prayer this morning that you would allow the Spirit of God to kind of impact you deeply with those things. Again, I seem to be letting myself off the hook here because <laughs> you're doing the work, not me. But you know, I'm not, an, I'm not an expert. I'm just a co-learner. And so together we allow the Word of God to teach us in community as we explore this together. I have, of course, done some thinking about this story over, the, over many years, actually, and, and again, more recently, preparing for today. And as I asked myself the very questions that I asked you to ask each other, there are some things that popped out and struck me as significant. And I want to share a few of those with you this morning. And I won't be surprised if that at all if they align up with some of the things that you were talking about. It's been about six, maybe nine months since Jesus called the four fishermen to follow him. And in that time, he's been modelling to those who are following him uh, what it means to be fishers of men. As we heard in the story, and if you would like to, if you would care to look in your Bibles, you could go back a page or two and discover this for yourself. He's just chosen the twelve. And if I understand the uh, timeline correctly, it was that night or the night before, the day before. He's just chosen the 12. He was up on the mountain praying. The Lord revealed to him who the 12 apostles were to be. He selected them from the group that were following him. They came down the mountain. There was a large crowd at the base of the hill. And this is where he taught the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes and so on. And that probably happened all morning, right up past lunchtime, I would imagine. And now they're making their way as a group back 
you know, down from the hills into Capernaum. So that's kind of the, the location and the setting. Believe it or not, even though it's very early in the book of Luke, and again in the book of Matthew very early on, Jesus is already two, maybe two and a half years into his three years of ministry at this point in the story. And he's about to begin a very intensive stage of training with his discipleship team. I I like to call it the apprenticeship phase. And this encounter with the centurion is their first lesson. I find it intriguing, in fact almost ironic when you think about it, that this first lesson that Jesus has for his new, I don't know, leadership team will be taught to them by a Gentile. If you follow through the Luke uh, Gospel of Luke and the themes that he's kind of setting out, it's, it's very clear that the primary lesson here through this story is one of faith. But as you think about this story, and certainly as I reflected on this story, there are some other things that I believe that we can learn from it. You see, there's something about this centurion, there's something about this man, about his character, about who he is and how he acts, that exemplifies, I think, what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. It's the perfect first lesson for Jesus' new leadership team. And I believe it's intentional. And here are the four words that stand out to me. Love, humility, faith, and authority. And we're going to look at each of those just quickly this morning. Let's start with love. Can you recall from the, from the narrative what it was that the Jewish elders said, uh, said to, to Jesus about the centurion? If you're looking along in your Bibles, you'll find it in uh, Luke uh, 7 verses uh, 4 and 5. This is what they said. Listen to the words because it's really interesting. This man deserves to have you do this. They go and find Jesus, they explain the situation. Um, There's a centurion in our village, he has a servant who's in bed about to die. Jesus, please come, he deserves to have you do this. I find that interesting. Why? Because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. Have you ever noticed that before? I remember the first time that I really noticed the words in that sentence. I thought, hang on a minute, what's going on here? A Roman centurion who loves the nation of Israel and built a synagogue? Very intriguing. And so they plead for Jesus to come. Because it's obvious, I think, just even from the story, that this centurion... uh, loves the people in his household, including his servants. If you were here for the series we did in Ephesians, it was last year, wasn't it? Just thought I'd check. I've already put it behind me, eh? Uh, we, talked a little about, uh, we talked a little bit, I think, around the whole culture of servants, in, 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 you know, and we often have a picture of servants being really negative, but actually it's not always as bad as we perhaps picture it. Um, But here is a man who loves those in his household, including his servants. He deserves this, they said. You have to keep in mind that in this time and culture, even though servants are valuable, they are replaceable. And it would be 
Certainly within the centurion's power, not to mention to be socially acceptable in Roman culture, for him to get rid of a dying servant and buy a new one. Totally acceptable. But his actions tell us, actually, that he places a high value on human life. And in fact, it would seem, based on what the elders are saying to Jesus in our story, that this man has also developed a deep sense of love and respect for the whole Jewish people. The very people he's been sent to govern as a representative of Rome. When you think of a Roman centurion, unless you've studied history, um, probably a bit like me, uh, before digging a little deeper, your picture of a centurion is informed probably mainly by Hollywood, perhaps. Uh, or Netflix or whatever. Um, and there are some good shows which attempt to represent uh, in a historically accurate way what it might have looked like and been like. But usually they're perceived as very very tough and very violent uh, leaders of a group of men. And we know that Centurion was a person in charge of between 80 and 100 men and they were like a, a senior ranking officer. And as we discovered from, from the story, it, it is possible that Centurions can also be placed into, into kind of leadership roles within the community as representatives of the state of Rome. But our picture of a Roman is very often very different to what we read here. Is it just me that thinks that? Here is a man who cares. Here is a man who loves those in his household, including his servant. There is a man who has a deep love and respect for the people whom he's serving, if you like, or overseeing, probably more to the point. This speaks volumes, I believe, to the power of love in the community. And as God's, as I think about this, as God's representatives, kingdom people living in the world, it is our love for those around us that can and will change the perspective of other people. Have you experienced that? That when we love one another, in fact we're commanded to do so, love one another and the world will know that you're my disciples, Jesus said it very plainly. But as we love one another in the church and as we love those around us who are not in the church, so the people around us in the community, that love, that love that's in, that is active and visible and tangible changes perspectives. And here we have a group of Jewish elders saying strange things like, he deserves you to come and do this. He deserves to have you do this. Speaks so strongly about his character. You know, in many ways, this story is a parable about love in action um, and how it can change a whole community. Um, kind of what's, what's kind of hard-hitting about this story, I think, is that it's the enemy of Israel that's doing the loving. It's an upside-down story, which doesn't surprise me because the kingdom of God is an upside-down kingdom. It's not what we think or expect. It's often quite the opposite. And it serves to highlight a kingdom principle. What a powerful picture. What a powerful picture. One that poses a sobering question. I wonder... And this was one of the questions that I had as I reflected on this story. I wonder, do people speak highly of me? Not because of who I am or the positions that I hold, but because of how I demonstrate love and care for people. It wakes me up. It wakes me up. It challenges me.
Let's look at humility. When you compare Luke's account with Matthew's account, you'll notice that there's one really glaringly obvious difference. And we don't really have the time today to go into that difference. We could spend a whole sermon talking about it, but we won't. But Matthew has the centurion going to Jesus personally, whilst Luke has him sending first Jewish elders and then friends. And I don't think that really matters. Actually, it's got to do with authority. You know, when someone carries the word of someone in authority, it's as if they're speaking on their behalf. So if, if someone is speaking on behalf of a king, for example, then it's as if the king is speaking. And that's kind of how I think it works in, in Matthew. But anyway, we won't go there in too much detail. Either way, in both accounts, both Matthew and Luke include the centurion's humility. Listen to what he says. He says, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve... That's an interesting contrast, isn't it? Jesus, please come. He deserves to have you do this. Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. Why do you think he's saying this? I actually think a better translation for what he said can be found in the New Living Translation. Um, for I am not worthy of such an honour, is really how it comes out. You can't come into my house. I am not worthy of such an honour. Now just step back a moment and think about whose mouth that's coming out of. A Roman centurion. A man with power and authority in the community, placed there by Rome to enact a certain role, to govern over, to oversee, to make sure that the Pax Romana is kept. Do you remember what Pax Romana is? Roman peace? We will all live at peace, and if you don't, we'll hammer blow you. <laughs> yes, Rome. That's what he was there for. Don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. Now, we don't know, to be fair, what's going on in his mind or in his heart, because the text doesn't really allow that. But it would seem clear, I think, from his sentiment that he does not see himself as worthy enough to have someone like Jesus in his home. And this really intrigues me. It makes me wonder, actually, who he thinks Jesus really is. I also think this man has a deep understanding and respect for Jewish culture and practice. He knows that it would not be acceptable for a Jewish rabbi to step foot into a Gentile home. Because the moment the Jewish rabbi steps foot into a Gentile home, not only is the home seen as unclean, but the person who steps into it becomes unclean. And if he's a Jewish rabbi serving in the synagogue, then that means he can't work anymore for a certain period of time until he makes himself clean again. And there's a whole process involved in that. And it really would be inconvenient. You thought masks were inconvenient. <laughs> but I can't help but wonder if in his observations of the culture in which he's now living and working and with his growing love and respect for these people, there's a part of him that goes, actually, you can't come into my house because that would really upset your world. And it would be an inconvenience to you. So don't come, please. It's not just socially unacceptable for a Jew to do that. It would be, there would, as I said, be terrible religious implications. So out of a deep sense of respect for who Jesus is, the centurion displays, I think, a wonderful humility. And by insisting that Jesus doesn't come to his house, he's actually putting Jesus' status and reputation before his own. 
again, I reflect on my own context as I think about this story. What does it look like for me to put others first? To show humility and respect towards those around me? To put my own status and reputation aside in order to serve and bless others? It's a powerful question. Let's have a look at faith. Have you ever wondered, someone prayed this earlier and it kind of made me laugh. Have you ever wondered if God can be taken by surprise? COVID's back, surprise. You've got to wear masks, surprise. Can God be taken by surprise? Because you know, to be honest, it almost seems like Jesus is shocked by this man's response. It definitely implies that he was amazed. Can you remember what it was that Jesus said to the crowd who were following in response to the centurion's request for Jesus? To, he said, just say the word um, and my servant will be healed. Do you remember what Jesus said? He said, I tell you, I have not found such a great faith even in Israel. Wow. Talk about Bang. I have not found even great faith even in Israel. I love the way one author paraphrases what Jesus is actually saying here and, and this, I think, comes a lot out of uh, Matthew's account of this event. Now listen to what this author says, um, a paraphrase of what Jesus is really saying here. I've yet, to come come, I've yet to come across this kind of simple trust in Israel, the very people who are supposed to know all about God and how he works. This man is an example of the many outsiders who will soon be coming from all directions, sitting down at God's kingdom banquet besides Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Then those who grew up in the faith but had no faith will find themselves out in the cold, outsiders to grace and left wondering what hit them. One of the questions that this particular story raises for me as I think about it is, is this actually, it's a series of questions. Did this man have a faith in Jesus? And if he did, what was that faith based on? I mean, was it a, was it a complex faith, a, uh, you know, built over years of study and, uh, med- and reflection or meditation and then practice? Or was it a simple faith? a seemingly spontaneous action based on a belief brought about by an experience and or an observation. I think the latter, personally. You see, based on what he has seen with his own eyes and heard perhaps with his own ears from others, this man has come to the realisation or the conclusion that this rabbi, this Jesus, he actually has the power to heal people. And in faith, he reaches out. That's what you were talking about this morning, Vic. Even in the even in the doubt, just reaching out. Not based on some airy fairy idea, but based on a growing, deepening conviction, based on what you've seen with your own eyes or heard with your own ears or experienced in your own life, that actually God is for me. At some point in this centurion's life, he has heard or seen something, and maybe it's been a series of things, and I'll talk about that in a moment, 
that has caused him to go, do you know what? I need Jesus to do this. That's faith. And it astounds Jesus. It amazes him. That's why he says, I've yet to see even this kind of faith even amongst Israel. (laughs) They're the ones who should know better. That's a very general statement because there were many Jewish people who did reach out to Jesus. But you get the point. The point that Jesus is making is very profound. This story causes me to ask this question. Do I trust God, actually? I mean, really trust him? Am I living a life of faith that reflects a deep, a personal knowledge of who God is and what he is like and what he is able to do? Many people know who God is. But it's a whole other thing to know what he's like. And it's a whole other thing to believe in what he can do. And that's what faith is, reaching out and taking hold. It's a very powerful lesson. And lastly, let's talk about authority. And this is probably the part, this is probably the the virtue or the principle that gets pulled out of this story the most, and and rightly so, because it's there very plainly in in the narrative. Because here is a man who understands authority. As a centurion, as we know from this story and from historical documents, he has authority. He has the authority to make decisions and authority to give commands. He has the authority to reward. He has the authority to punish. But he knows without a certain... He knows most certainly that that authority is not his own. It's given to him by his commanding officer, who in turn receives his authority from Rome. As powerful, though, as this man is, he knows that he has no authority over a person's health. None. If you do the wrong thing and need to be punished, he can take your life under Roman law, but he can't heal you. If you've been wrongly imprisoned or even imprisoned for something you did wrong, he has the authority and the power to set you free. But he can't cure your illness. He can't restore your life. And he knows that. He understands authority and power and the relationship between the two. And you may recall in a recent message here, again from the Ephesians series, that there's a big difference between the authority of power and the power of authority. The centurion lives in a world that revolves around the authority of power. He has been given authority to exercise power, but he has no power over the authority of life and death in the physical sense. Maybe in the corporal punishment sense. but Did you see what I'm saying? He understands the difference and this is important. Have you ever wondered, have you ever wondered how he knows this? How he knows that Jesus has the power and authority to heal? What is it that this man has seen again with his own eyes? What is it that he's heard as other people talk about what they've seen? What has he heard from others that has compelled him to reach out to Jesus for help? 
Again, we need to step back and consider his location. Where does he live? Come on, let's, you've got to say something today. Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> Sorry. Mm-hmm. He lives in Capernaum. Who else lives in Capernaum at this time? I'll answer that. Peter, James, John and Andrew, for starters. They live in Capernaum. Guess who else lives in Capernaum? Jesus. In fact, he's been there for about nine months. He's made Capernaum his operating base, if you like, his forward base. And in that time there, and in the surrounding areas, in fact, all over the place, he's healed many people. We know of quite a few, but I imagine that there are hundreds more. Remember, Luke says in his account that if we were to write books that told the whole story of everything that Jesus had done, there'd be not enough books in the world type of thing. How many times has this guy heard or seen or heard rumours of the works that Jesus has been doing? Lepers healed, paralytics restored, cripples walking, blind people seeing, people oppressed by demons set free and released. Capernaum's not that big. You'd have to be living in a hole in the ground, I think to not have at least heard about Jesus and what he's been doing. These things have not gone unnoticed, I can promise you. And what about the government official who lives in Capernaum? Do you know about him? The one from John chapter 4? The guy who walked from Capernaum to Cana, that's 35 kilometres roughly, by the way, uphill through mountains, rock through mountainous, rocky territory. He walks for more than a day to find Jesus. Why? Because his son is dying. Do you remember that story? Based on a rumour that perhaps Jesus was back in Cana, here is a government official from Capernaum makes this arduous trek to find Jesus in the hope of asking him, would you heal my son? Would you come and heal him? He finds Jesus. Do you remember the story? Jesus says to him, go, your son will live. So the man set off to go home. But before he got there, some of his servants met him on the road to tell him that his son was well. The boy was healed the day before at the exact time when Jesus has said to the man, go, your son will live. Hello. (laughs) Where does he live? You can say it again. Go on. Capernaum. Who else lives in Capernaum? The centurion. Here are two men from the ruling class, government officials, if you like, in a reasonably small rural setting. They have to be rubbing shoulders. They have to be. They have to be. I don't believe for a minute that this guy's joy was contained. (laughs) His son was dying. If your son was dying, would you not be full of joy that he was healed? You would tell everyone, and everyone would know anyway. It's a small town. I believe with all my heart that the centurion has, has at least talked to this guy or heard his story, at least, let alone all the hundreds of other stories. And in faith, full of, I don't even want a word to use, I don't even want to use the word belief because it makes mine, puts mine to shame, he reaches out 
And he says to Jesus, just, just say the word. Just, just, you don't even need to come to my house, just say the word. Both of these men who have a level of authority recognise that true power comes from God. And as I reflect on this truth, that even though I have the freedom to live my life as I see fit, it is only through the power and authority of Jesus living in me that I'm able to achieve anything of kingdom value. You've got to reach out. You've got to take hold of it. I invite the team to come up. Just imagine what it would look like. Just imagine if you're able what it would look like if each of us here today committed to living our lives submitted to the power and authority of Jesus. What would that look like in our homes, in our schools, in our workplaces, in our community? If we lived lives of love and caring for people, a such a powerful action that causes change. If we lived with humility, putting the needs of others before our own and the reputation of others before our own. If we walked and lived in faith, a real faith, a tangible faith, based on the evidence of what we've seen and heard and experienced in our own lives, in our own stories and in the stories of so many others how powerful that would be. And if we actually lived and walked fully understanding the authority, not just the authority that we have in Christ to do the things that he's called us to do, but the authority that Jesus has to do those things, not just in our lives, but in the lives of those around us. Wow. How powerful would that be? And these are all lessons that Jesus wanted his disciples to learn and to understand. And you know, over the next probably six, maybe nine months together, six months together, as Jesus now kind of heads towards the cross. The disciples are going to learn from him in very real and tangible ways what it truly means to follow him. And that's my prayer for us this week, that as we consider this story, that as we read it again and meditate on it and think through it and allow the words and the ideas to challenge us and as we allow the Spirit of God to teach us, as we consider love, humility, faith and authority in our lives, that we would truly come to a deeper understanding of what it means to follow him and the impact that might have in our community. Father, we thank you for your word for this small scene out of a much larger narrative which is so rich and deep and powerful and there's so much more to be gleaned from it. Would you give us ears to hear and hearts to understand as we meditate on it this week and as we allow it to inform us and shape us enlighten us and empower us to be followers of you. We thank you for your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, team.